And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, a political podcast brought to you by the team at The Scotsman. My name is Conor Matchett, I'm a political reporter at The Scotsman and with me as always is our deputy political editor Gina Davidson. Good morning Gina. Good morning Conor. Uh, later on we'll hear from two MSP candidates hoping to become the first black MSP ever to take a seat in the Holyrood Chamber. They are SNP candidate Graham Campbell and Scottish Tory candidate Adi Ibenu. But first, it would be remiss not to discuss it. It's probably the biggest week in Scottish politics since the first independence referendum back in 2014. Nicola Sturgeon is fighting for her political career. She faces the publication of two reports into her conduct. The first is the report from the independent advisor on the ministerial code, James Hamilton. And the second is the final report from the Holyrood Inquiry into the Scottish government's handling harassment complaints, also known as the Salmon Inquiry which is due out on Tuesday, also after this podcast is recorded. And following all of this and their conclusions, the First Minister is likely to face a vote of no confidence brought by the Scottish Tories on Wednesday. Wednesday is also the final First Minister's questions of the Parliament, with Holyrood rising ahead of that very minor issue of a Scottish parliamentary election. So it's a quiet week, all told, Gina. Nothing much doing, nothing much. <laughs> I think you're, you're, you're very right, Connor, to say that this is possibly the biggest political week ever since the, the 2014 referendum. And in, in many ways, even bigger, because what's at the heart of it is uh, the trust and integrity of both the government and the First Minister and the Parliament, you know, so everything is kind of on the line this week. It's a fascinating one, because I think you're absolutely right. The attacks on the credibility of the institutions of Scotland have been one of the running themes of the last maybe three three months really since the since the Salmond inquiry in Holyrood really got going um after Christmas. And I think that report due out the day this podcast goes out is will, will be a fascinating read. We'll start chatting on the Hamilton investigation, the Hamilton inquiry. That's due out today as we speak, tomorrow yesterday for listeners. Um, so they'll be able to joke about how wrong we were. But um, what do we think it will say? What, what's, what's your feeling at the minute, Gina? Do you think that he will conclude, as has the Salmon Inquiry, that, that the First Minister has uh, misled Parliament or has breached the Ministerial Code? I'm probably going to be slightly cowardly here, but I'm going to sit on the fence because I don't know what the James Hamilton inquiry will conclude because, you know, unlike the, the committee, which has all been done in public, we know nothing about what James Hamilton has been told or who he's spoken to or who he's seen. I mean, we can only speculate he's spoken to all the main actors 
in the the issue of how the government handled the original um, sexual harassment complaints against Alex Salmond. I think we also know that he's spoken to people who were not able to give evidence to the committee because of legal reasons. So he'll have possibly a wider view of everything. So we, we don't know what his thoughts are at all. Now, the First Minister has seemed very confident when she's spoken um, about James Hamilton's inquiry that she will not be found to have breached the, the ministerial codes in any sense. My instinct is that, that he will find that she's broken some of the ministerial code, but possibly not in a way that would be enough to force a resignation. Now, that's something, obviously, that um, will become hugely political. And we have this vote of no confidence coming up as well. So Parliament dissolves on Wednesday. It's Thursday for the elections. There's, there's really very little time for a, an FM resignation. And I don't even know, despite all of this, if the vast majority of the public would have the stomach for something like that just before a, an election. The whole thing is utterly fascinating. And it's like you say, it's something that's never had to be um, considered by the Scottish Parliament before as have you know, all the questions about the powers that the Scottish Parliament has. And I think what will be very interesting following on from this is how things might change and how all the demands for more devolution and more powers might actually be more about what the Parliament can do in terms of holding the executive to account. It's an interesting one because I think, as, as, you, as you rightly say, the confidence that the SNP and you know, supporters of, of, of the First Minister are talking about the Hamilton Inquiry suggests a degree of confidence that you know she can't have in the salmon inquiry due to you know its partisan nature she's been she's been setting the groundwork for undermining the the salmon inquiry in in the Hollywood terms as a partisan act of attempting to find her guilty for months you know if you if you listen back to what she's been saying about it the Scottish Tories made a massive tactical error in my book for calling for a resignation before she even gave evidence completely undermines you know the the inquiry in that regard not helped by the leaks etc over the last few weeks but the hamilton inquiry i think it would be a it would be a shock but pretend, potentially not an unexpected shock and um, bizarrely if if she was found to have breached the ministerial code as you say in in one of those ways that is potentially minor i think it'd be very surprising if we didn't see a resignation if she's found to have misled parliament in that that report and that inquiry even I think the Greens would find it very difficult to potentially not, but to potentially back the government on a vote of no confidence if she has been found to mislead Parliament um, through the Hamilton report. I think I wrote a little bit about this last week when the first kind of misled Parliament leak came from the Salmond inquiry. All of the eggs of the Nationalists and the SNP are held in James Hamilton's basket and, you know, might very well break all over the floor and fundamentally the, the success of the SNP is based on the success of Nicola Sturgeon if she leaves I think they're in deep trouble for the election huge huge trouble for the election I mean they would be a party uh, adrift really if if she leaves and on top of that you know you have the Covid situation and so who's who's leading on that if if she was to go um, although obviously we have a health secretary who should hopefully possibly step into that that gap as well as many public health officials. But the, I, I think we spoke about this, touched on it slightly last week, Connor. But there's definitely been very little succession planning within the SNP, um, which is r really quite remarkable. Um, and that might just go to the the heart of the fact that Nicola Sturgeon didn't think she 
was going to have to do any succession planning until all of this happened. So without her, they are a bit rudderless, I think, particularly during an election campaign. And I think you're right also to say that the Scottish Greens are again in a position where, you know, they might hold the fate of everything in their hands come a vote of no confidence. I mean, they've already written off the, the committee inquiry. They, they believe it's been partisan. And of course it has been partisan. I mean, there's no getting away from that. But, you know, it's partisan on both sides. You know, you can't have a committee made up of so many different party members and from different parties and, and to be partisan. So that, that was inevitable. The committee was never going to be unanimous on, on what it was going to recommend or what it was going to say. It's interesting, I think, that it appears to have come out and said that she has broken the ministerial code based on the casting vote of Andy Whiteman, who, who used to be a Green. Whether or not if he was still in the Green Party, he would have voted that way is, is an interesting uh, discussion to be had, I think. But yes, the Greens have already written off that report, as have the SNP. So it will all hinge on, on James Hamilton and, and what he has to say. And on the on the Salmond report, the committee report, arguably that is perversely a report that's been written off, despite being more important for the future of you know both the Scottish government and the Scottish Parliament, because for it, its its remit is much wider than the Hamilton inquiry. The Hamilton inquiry is looking at just Miss Sturgeon's actions, you know whether or not the first ministers breached the ministerial code. The Salmond inquiry is talking about. The development of a procedure that was found to be, you know, tainted by bias, the handling of harassment complaints, which is clearly one of the biggest scandals of, you know, Scottish politics history, the judicial review, which frankly was an absolute mess and crisis from from a from a Scottish government point of view, and it also, arguably, the less least important aspect of that whole inquiry is what's dominated it. Um, from a political standpoint, from 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 the very start, which is whether or not Nicola Sturgeon's breach ministerial cut. The findings of the first three parts of the, the committee's remit hopefully won't be undermined by this partisanship because you want to hear that some lessons have been learned and that some recommendations will be taken forward. Because fundamentally, you can't have what happened in 2017, 2018 happen again you can't you couldn't you know these women have been were completely failed by the system the scottish government was evidently you know dogged by incompetence throughout this and you know they made mistake upon mistake upon mistake and there's an aspect of this that you can't forget that these things need to be rectified and they need to be rectified soon there was a story i think in the in the times last week that there are there are people who want to come forward with bullying and harassment complaints within the within the civil service that won't and don't feel comfortable of, for doing so because of the way the last two complaints were handled and, and and the subsequent inquiry. I think to that extent, that inquiry and that report hopefully will matter. I've got it written down in my notes here. You know, will it even matter this this committee report? Will it just be lost in the noise of? of the Hamilton report and and the calls for the FM to go. I think it'd be a damn shame if we get to the end of the, all of this and we don't have some change at, at the heart of the Scottish government and the civil service. Yeah, I think um, as well as calls for Nicola Sturgeon to go, I think there will be calls for Leslie Evans to resign. It's hard to see how she doesn't resign. Absolutely. And also 
others within the civil service who've, who've been implicated in the in the mishandling of all of this. And I think you're absolutely right that the women, um, the two original complainers who came forward, um, have just, you know, they've just had their lives overtaken entirely by this situation. And even on Sunday, I think it was in the Sunday Times, there was a leak of apparently of the evidence that they gave in private to the committee. And I, I you know... As a journalist, you're all for leaks, you know, because it makes for great stories. But actually, you know, as a human being, your response to that is, oh, for God's sake, guys, you know, get a grip. These women are, you know, at the heart of this and they've been failed left, right and centre. And that leak is failing them again. And it's really outrageous. And to be honest, there is possibly an argument as well for some sanction on the committee or the finding out who the leaks are from there and, and some sanction of the on the MSPs who've done that because I think it's absolutely outrageous. There's one thing to be political about the First Minister's situation, there's quite another to be political about about the women um, at the heart of this. And yes, they have been failed. I mean, the government has admitted that, that there, there's no getting away from it. And I think ultimately the people who are responsible uh, for the policy and the way it was handled have to you know, take responsibility for that at the end of the day. Absolutely. And we, we, we'll, let's move on just slightly. We're in a position where we are six weeks out, I think now, to an election like no other, and potentially one that is going to be one of the most fraught of of uh, Scottish Parliament's history. I think it's going to be a fascinating uh, period of time to watch and a lot of angry noise from a lot of the parties. How much of that will be translated into substance in the manifestos, I think is going to be a real test of of the position of some of the opposition. Absolutely. And I think as well, though, there needs to be some cool heads around, you know, there needs, despite all of the, the, the furore around all of this, the parties need to be very careful that they're not whipping up on, on any side, you know, whipping up real anger that can result in anything happening beyond the social media bubble and you know in real life and we've seen over the weekend the journalist Ruth Wishart saying that she's received a, a threat and an intimidatory threat through her door um, at home uh, George Galloway has apparently left Scotland over the weekend because there was a, a threat against his life you know I mean and all of this before we're even into a proper election campaign and before certainly before we're anywhere near a second independence referendum so I think you know the politicians need to be very careful about the language that they use and um, how they how they're attempting to drum up support over this election campaign. Talking about election campaigns and talking about Holyrood, both Gina and I sat down with two potential um, MSPs, Graham Campbell and Adi Ibnu, both of whom are attempting to be the first black MSP in Holyrood. It comes alongside a BBC disclosure program, which I believe is out. Um, tonight, which looks at black and ethnic minority women and their lack of representation in the Scottish Parliament. But we spoke to Addie and Graham on Friday. Hello to Councillor Graham Campbell and Councillor Addie Ibinu from uh, Glasgow City Council, both Holyrood candidates for the 2021 election. Um, welcome to the STEAMY, uh, the both of you. Um, it's fantastic to have you here. Just for, for our listeners' benefit, um, Addy, you're, you're third on the Glasgow list um, for, for the Scottish Conservatives. Graham, you're top of the SNP regional list uh, for the Lothian region. Um, fantastic to have you both here. Uh, Graham, if I could start with you. Um, it's an election like no other. How are things going so far? I imagine the campaign is 
slightly underway if if in different circumstances to normal? Well, indeed, uh, I've been to a lot of online uh, candidate adoption nights in various constituencies. I've I've you know applied to raffle many many prizes uh, during the course of that time, but it's been weird not to see people face to face, not to see electors, not to see a single leaflet <laughs> until this week. We weren't allowed to leaflet, so uh, it's been uh, a weird sort of phantom election almost. It's it's just it's 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 hard to know how to to gauge how you're doing it, we have no idea really and Adi how have things been so far for you I think I'll, I'll echo what um, Councillor Graham Campbell has just said it's been pretty quiet um, in terms of you know delivering leaflets but I suppose we've got avenues as well so using digital campaigning and um, you know calling up voters as well that's something that I've certainly been, uh, been doing myself Fantastic. I mean, the the reason we have you both on the on the podcast is, you know, we're at a point in time in in Scottish politics history where we're in this very strange situation of having a parliament that's twenty plus years old and never having had um, a black MSP. You guys are both on the verge, depending on how the votes play out in in May. I know you both were elected as as councillors in Glasgow back in twenty seventeen. I think if 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 my if my research is right. Um, Adi, what was it like initially getting involved in, in politics in Scotland um, as a black councillor, as a black uh, mm. activist? I think for me it was a sort of huge um, learning, um, you know, going into politics. I, I suppose if I went straight into national politics, that might have been slightly different. I think going into local politics had a sort of different dimension to it. Um, so obviously I've lived in Glasgow now for 13, 14 years and I didn't even know who my local councillor was you know, <laughs> before I went into local politics. Uh, basically because as you know yourself, all the attention is on national politics. So there was a lot of learning for me to do, even going to hostings. I remember going for a particular hostings and I was absolutely clueless in terms of you know what contribution. Um, I wasn't making any you know, serious contribution to the debate. Um, obviously, I had transferable skills from my background, um, so maybe I winked quite a couple of hostings. But I think um, it's been such a huge learning curve. And then back to your question in terms of my personal experience being a Black person in Glasgow, I, I think this is something Graham will perhaps attest to as well. So when I came to Glasgow in 2008, there was hardly any Black person in Glasgow. Um, in fact, my undergrad, I think I was the only Black one of two black students at the University of Glasgow at the time. So it was certainly, you know, interesting um, in 2017 as well. There was no precedent. There was no one to look up to in terms of mentoring. And um, so it, it was huge. I had to learn a lot and um, it was certainly interesting. Obviously, there is still of us on Glasgow City Council. So, you know, things have moved forward quite a bit. And Graham, what, what about your side of, of, of things from that perspective? Well, uh, first of all, I, I want to pay tribute to Addy because uh, I always joke about this, but it's true. Uh, he was elected 10 minutes before me in 2017. So he became the first black councillor in, in Glasgow City Council. But I, I became the first African-Caribbean councillor. But we're both Nigerians. Uh, my, my, my Half of my you know, family, uh, you know, my aunt, Aunt Val, she went and got married in Nigeria. So I have cousins who were born in, in northern Nigeria. So uh, Nigeria is a very important country to both of us. and. You know, we've been able to work together. The fact that both of us were there made a material difference when the council 
decide about what it was going to do about the NSARS protests in Nigeria when you know, the citizens are being shot by, by their, their police and armed security forces. So we stood up with the Nigerian community here together. So it, there are some times when, because we are there in the room, it's made such a difference already. Um, you know, the, the, the agenda is there. What we bring with us as community activists is there in the chamber. And as well as from, I'm similar to Eddie, that I began with as a community activist and I've been in Glasgow for, this is my 19th year now coming up. And I started as a housing activist and as a community development worker and then helped to put, put African community stuff together. So that was really where I got this. And I don't know if you've had this as well, Andy, but I have it all the time that uh, before now running for MSP, people were always asking you, well, when are you going to run for this? When are you going to run for that? <laughs> uh, you know, we've only just got used to, be, to doing this job. And, you know, we're now four years in. So I would say now we're, we're, we're seasoned, uh, experienced uh, councillors now, but we weren't <laughs> when we started. And, you know, already people's expectation of us as a community was that we would aim higher. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily see this as higher, though, because obviously such important decisions are made at a council level. I mean, our council has a budget of 1.6 billion. It's, it's a huge amount of money. It's about one, one or two percent of the entire GDP of the country. So it's a huge amount of uh, responsibility that we carry as councillors. And in many ways, it's the decisions are more down to earth and directly experienced by people. So in many ways, you get a lot more positive feedback, obviously some negative stuff too. But you know the, what's interesting as well from running before, I remember that on knocking doors, it was interesting to see that I was worried that I would get a bit of a backlash, but for being a back candidate. In fact, I got the opposite. I got you know, members of the public attacking me because I was the SMB candidate, and then was the public loving me because I was the SMB candidate. And, but it made no difference who I was, and that that was kind of kind of encouraging. Can I come in uh, if you don't mind, guys? I was just wondering about um, that experience on the doorsteps because we've obviously. As Connor said, we have no uh, black MSPs in Parliament over the last 20 years, but we have had MSPs who have a, a, an Asian ethnicity and they have spoken about the, the racism that they have faced in their, their political careers. And I just wondered if that um, was something that you shared as well. Uh, thanks, Jean. I, I think that's a very... Um it's an interesting question. So without going into detail, you know, I'll be very honest. Um, I have experienced racism even in politics in, in Scotland. I stood in the general election in 2019 for um, Glasgow Northwest, and I I remember going for a hostings, and I, you know after the hostings, the two people were having a conversation, so I overheard the conversation myself. It wasn't like a third party account, um, and so the one particular person was saying, "Oh, you know, I um, this candidate." Um, He's really rubbish. He was speaking about a candidate from another political party, not myself. And then when he got to myself, he said, um, that other guy, he's not um, MP material. And then the person standing um, close to, to that other, we just call the person Mr. A, right? Um, so the person said to Mr. A and said, but he's, um, you, know, the, you know, one of the best candidates and um, Mr. He responded and said, but he's not MP material. And I, I remember this very sharply. I remember walking back to my car and being um, utterly broken because I, I knew exactly what that meant. 
and and I know you know I can't prove it that it was racism, but I I, I think I kind of knew where you know why he said he made that comment. And you know, despite being you know one of the best candidates at the hostings, the fact that he chose to think that um, I'm just not um, an MP material, um, you know, as a black person, I know exactly what um, he said there, but he did not want to be explicit about what he was trying to say. So yes, I have experienced racism, but you know what? Um, I do believe, you know, um, that we just have to keep going, you know, as people coming from a black background, you know, to encourage the next generation to stand in politics. And we can't allow one person's negativity to sort of stop us um, from achieving our objectives. I think most Scottish people um, are not like Mr. A. Um, so, you know, that's a point I'd like to make as well. But that's one experience that I will never forget. I was utterly broken. How about you, Graham? How's, how's it affected you, your campaigning? Mainly online. I have to say, um, I've not had as much grief as my colleague Hamza Yusuf or people like that. Uh, I, I've been relatively lucky so far with, with social media, especially. Uh, I started to get a bit of a backlash on, uh, usually just on general questions. You know, if, I've, if I've had a, a negative story about me in the, the local press, then that gets recycled back at you. It really wasn't until the Black Lives Matter events last year, which I took part in, and I'm an active supporter of the, the movement. And the statue debate was one, you know, where the really right-wing reactionary people, as a foil for their right-wing reactionists, attacked you as a, a vandal, as anti-British, as anti—you know, whatever they, they trope they wish to, to make. But I think that. The progress I've, we've made as a city around the slavery legacy and the role that I've played in it has come under some sort of attack now. There's been a bit of a backlash to it. Originally, you know, I've been working on that for about 10 or 12 years. And most of the time, my experience of Glaswegians especially has been that they're open to the 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 reassessing of that colonial history and the Glasgow's role in it, in particular Scotland's role in it. And by and large, their reaction has been I want to know more. Why don't we know more? We should know more about this in school. That's been the overwhelming 90% sort of reaction to me. But that minority that wants that story to be hidden doesn't like the fact that we're in a position of, of, of authority to, 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 to make, use my platform to talk about that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, there are, some, there are some things you get attacked for. So far, I've not had too many direct racism experiences, but generally they're sort of indirect. In, in situations like Ali's had, I often will walk into a room, uh, people see my name in writing and they won't realise it might be me. <laughs> so they're always surprised. It's, oh, you're Councillor Campbell. Oh, OK. Uh, they're not expecting Councillor Campbell to be me. Uh, so I have had that reaction quite a few times, walking into council offices or, in, you know, originally when I first went to a couple of community meetings, but actually they got used to me. No problem. Do, do you guys think... Um... That, that that sort of indirect racism and Graham, you know, this the stuff you've had on on social media, and I know a lot of the debate around the SNP's regional list rankings this year has been pretty hideous, you know, online. Do, do you think that that people like you, you guys, but maybe four or five years prior to where you are in the in the political life of someone, view this and see it as a reason not to stand to not get involved in in politics in, in Scotland I don't, I don't know what your peers talk about in that regard is it is it is it a barrier 
I think it's more of a barrier for women. Mm. Uh, and the, the misogyny that's been directed by uh, against people like Diane Abbott, for example, over many decades, which black woman would want to go into uh, that, uh, an, an atmosphere like that? And, you know, given how they're trolled and, you know, the Asian women the same way. So I admire the colleagues of mine who have joined me in the fight for our BAME network, uh, Black Asian Minority Ethnic Network in the party, to, to win the argument in the party that there should be special measures and we've adopted measures which mean that four out of the eight regions have a, a BAME person topping them. And that is in order to guarantee at least a chance of an outcome that they would win elections to parliament. So potentially it's a possibility that, uh, you know, there's five BAME people topping the list out of eight. Uh, there's a potential, therefore, for nearly seven SNP members from a BAME community uh, getting elected. That will really transform parliament. So, yes, it's needed to do that. And obviously we've had to do a fight to get there, but I'm, I'm glad we've won that fight, won the argument. And it's interesting as well that we just yesterday got Alan Kaza, Javed selected in to fight the, the Motherwell constituency. And that's quite encouraging because it means that, sorry, Adrian Schott's constituency, um, it means the members of the party in Adrian Schott's chose her as their number one. And that, that's very encouraging indeed. So no, there should be no limit to any black or Asian or minority ethnic candidate anywhere in Scotland. You know, the members of the parties are quite capable of of recognising talent where they see it and choosing them and to put them forward to represent their parties. Adi, do you think that kind of um, positive discrimination that the SNP have introduced needs to happen in your party? Yeah, I'm just laughing. Um, I, I'm not good to comment on, you know, SNP's um, procedures or, you know, how they've, how they've decided to, um, you know, do the regional rankings. The only thing I would say is we need to sort of um, put in place a system to ensure that, you know, talented people from being backgrounds and from the Black community have sort of the same opportunity to contest for elections. I think I prefer something which is much more organic and which will, you know, sort of secure a much more lasting change. Uh, because my fear, I'm just going to use an example. So, for example, in the United States of America, we've had um, a black president of the US, but that really hasn't addressed um, quite a lot of issues faced by black Americans. So I prefer something which is much more um, strategic and organic as well um, in terms of, you know, ensuring we're a society we're much more tolerant. Um, in our party, we've got um, the Scottish Conservatives Friends of BIM, um, which is a network for people from BIM backgrounds to sort of support ourselves um, mentor each other and then um, upskill where there are knowledge gaps. Do you guys think that part of the problem with the pipeline of talent in both both parties and pretty much every party in, in, in Scotland at the minute is due to the fact that that people from, from, from black communities don't have mentors and don't have people to look up to in that regard? I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Addy. I saw you nodding. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, it, it has to do more with mentor, you know, with people. I, I believe something. If you can't see something, you it's so challenging to become that thing. Um, and so we need proper mentorship, um, helping people to understand the political process. I think several people think, you know, politics, it's, um, you know, this you know, sort of mysterious um, 
um, something you've got to get yourself involved with. So I think we need to demystify, uh, you know, the process of politics itself. It's as simple as signing up to be a member of a political party, attending party events. So we need to sort of simplify the process to encourage people to engage with politics. And I do hope that people's, um, you know, you know, members of my community, seeing someone like myself, will encourage them to sort of get involved. Like I said as well, it's not, you know, this issue for me is much more beyond even feeling a political position. I don't need um, to be in the Scottish Parliament to inspire Black people. Um, it's all about networking. If I, If we have, you know, people in the Scottish Parliament willing to work with the Black community to sort of encourage people into politics, I think that's quite good. Um, but don't get me wrong, it's, it will be absolutely fantastic to have a Black person in the Scottish Parliament, like Graham said earlier, because, you know, we, we are, you know, I'm extremely passionate about, you know, Black people getting involved in public life. And even if you focus on research, the more diverse um, a particular organisation is because of, you know, shared lived experience from different communities, it leads to better decision making as well. So for me, mentorship is something we really need to look at. What, what's your take on that, Graham? We have a similar mentoring and support process through the Bain Network in the SMP. In fact, that's the predominant way we do things. And, you know, we make videos, we do mock interviews. And I think you have to really treat being a, an elected politician, particularly locally, as, a, you know, it's a job application. You know, you're, except that you're, you're interviewing panels, you know, 20,000 people in awards, you know, but, it's, but your pre-interview is with, you know, the members of your party, and to win that confidence of them. And to do that, you need to be active in the party locally. You need to be active in the community, known. And so that whole subtle networking thing that you need to do to be known enough to be selected by your party members, it's it's that inside knowledge that, you know, that we can pass on because we've been through the experience. And so, yes, the mentoring is absolutely crucial so that they don't make mistakes that we may have made. Because I, I think it, the reason why it's taken so long, and I, I, I say this because, as you, as you say, Addy, at the beginning, the African community was relatively small when we both arrived here, but it has grown exponentially. It's now a sizable enough community in our city and indeed across the country, you know, we're, we're as part of the growth of the BAME population in Scotland. But my message to society and even to politicians, those in the Scottish Parliament right now, is don't look at the numbers, right? Don't wait until we have a huge black um, community in Glasgow. Then you begin to listen to the to the needs of the black community. You've got to start doing it right now. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting argument because it's, um, it's the same one that women have been making for a very long time. You know, if you're not at the table, decisions are being made you know, they're being made about you without you and you can't you can't influence them. So I understand that. Can I ask as well though, Graham, I mean obviously there's been a bit of a row around the regional lists within the SNP and how they how they decided to choose who would go at the top. Now you're a Glasgow councillor, you're going to stand in the Lothian list. Um you know, why would people in Lothian choose to vote for you because they don't they don't know you and um you, you don't have that connection do you i mean how, how are you going to get over that bridge before may the 6th well actually you know oh. that's not correct um when i first my my first uh, arrival in scotland wasn't in 2003 when i came into the group family it was in 1994 when i stayed in Restoric. uh so that was my first visit to scotland to, when i stayed uh so actually edinburgh i got to know edinburgh first and actually 
during the campaign in Edinburgh around the attempt to create a, 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 the CEHA, you know, the equivalent of the GHA in Glasgow, Edinburgh tried to do stock transfer as well. So I actually got very involved in that campaign. So I'm actually quite well known in North and West Edinburgh, particularly around Pennywell and Muirhouse. Uh, so when I ran for Edinburgh West, I, I ran with knowledge of that community in that seat partly to do with the way that uh, our internal rules around selection has worked uh, because I support uh, all women's shortlists and I voted for that on the NEC. It actually meant that I couldn't run for the seats in Glasgow that, that I was most familiar with. Uh, and so I, I actually, because of the mechanism, because I support the mechanism, I, I'm glad that there are good women who will be can, the candidates in those areas. I then had to look for a seat where I knew and the only other seat I felt that I could legitimately say I knew was Edinburgh West. So that's why I ran there. And as a result of running there, I came uh, fourth or fifth, I think it was. Uh, and I did quite well. I was, I was the best outsider, you know, given the others were all locally rooted and I couldn't publicly campaign for myself. I was known enough to do quite well. And actually, I did well in the regional list. I actually came top out of all the people who weren't. MSP candidates. So uh, actually, party members did know me. Uh, so just to, to correct that, but that narrative, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm known in Edinburgh for some of the stuff I've done around the statues, along with Jeff Palmer and others, uh, the Dundas issue that you'll be familiar with. So with that caveat, yes, it is difficult. I mean, obviously, there are precedents for this. For example, in the last election, uh, Ali's party, the Conservatives, the top list candidate in uh, Glasgow was a guy from Edinburgh who's from Glasgow University, and Ruth Davidson, who's from Glasgow, stood in Edinburgh Central and got elected there. So, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but there are lots of people in Glasgow and Edinburgh who actually quite like each other, and there's lots of interaction between the two cities. And, you know, I can say this as a Londoner, but it's only 55 minutes between the two. There are, there are tube journeys in London that are twice as long as that. <laughs> Don't say that, Graham, or you'll you'll never get elected. Absolutely not. And in fact, the very fact that you were in Edinburgh and then chose to go to Glasgow really is just a scandal in its own right. Yeah. <laughs> I, w I wanted to ask you both, having having looked at the 2016 results and your rankings, if we had the same result in 2021, both of you would probably narrowly miss out on actually being elected because I think in Lothian there were no SNP um, candidates elected from the list, and in Glasgow there were only the two Tories. Do you think it's acceptable in 2021 for the Scottish Parliament to have no black MSPs? No, but uh, the electoral arithmetic uh, matters, though, isn't it? In the end, it's the electorate that decides, and it's up to parties to to, uh, to select people to in winnable positions. This was partly why the mechanism was such a thought process within our party, because ideally I'd have liked what Addy said, because I'd rather have had this a mechanism decided before we started selecting and you know this wasn't the idea we, in effect we had to have a mechanism to correct the lack of representation you know so i'd rather have a process where organically you grow the, the candidates naturally from you know with experience and so on and we've got that process now underway but that will probably only bear through in later years um it's just an accident of the electoral system we hope that we will be lucky in that system but you can't game it you the votes are the votes. So mm. we hope that, you know, we get a high enough percentage vote for me to get elected. Uh, uh, you know, I hope that Atty does well and that, you know, that he that he, he has a, a chance at some point. But obviously, if you run on the list, that does give you a profile as a national candidate for your party. And that's quite important that, you know, we have by-elections all the time. So it's, it, could, it may put Addy in good stead to 
to be a, a, a candidate later again. So, you know, I, I wouldn't see it as a loss if I didn't get elected. Addy, what are your thoughts? I would say, first of all, that, that was very gracious of Graham to wish um, a Conservative to be elected, but... Um, <laughs> I didn't quite say that. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but, but seriously, I think Graham makes um, a, a great point. Um, you know, to answer your question directly, uh, no, it's not, it's not ideal that we would not have a Black person in the Scottish Parliament in 2021. But, you know, as Graham said as well, even, you know, both of us standing as candidates, I hope, you know, it inspires people to sort of engage with the political process. You know, you never can tell, you know, it's it's up to the electorates to decide who gets into the Scottish Parliament. Um, it's up to the people of Glasgow. It's up uh, to the people um, in, where, um, in the region where Graham is standing, you know, to decide who gets into the Scottish Parliament. Um, and I, I'm hoping that in 2026, we would have more people from the Black community standing for the Scottish Parliament. And even in the next general election, the next um, national elections, um, Graham might have one or two things to say about uh, Scotland still being in the United Kingdom. Uh, but in the next general election, perhaps Graham would love to take a seat at Westminster. <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I'm so tempted to go into that one, but as, as a supporter of Africans for an Independent Scotland, that I, I, I genuinely hope that I could persuade Addy that our future is best served by our spanking. So I was being cheeky. <laughs> I really, I'm really cheeky back. That's fighting talk, fighting talk. Brilliant. Well, well, thank you very much, both of you, for for joining us on 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 the Steamy. It's really appreciated, especially at a busy time and. Uh, Best of luck with your campaigns, both of you, and hopefully see you in the Holyrood Chamber. So fascinating points of view there, Gina, from both Addy and Graham. I thought um, is it fascinating to hear two people on either side of the political divide actually getting on quite well and seeming seeming quite friendly to each other. Both of which, both of whom are both obviously on Glasgow City Council. What's your takeaway? I thought the the fact we don't have a black MSP in you know twenty first century Scotland, it is a bit of a black mark on the Scottish Parliament's record. It is. I think I think partly that'll be to do with numbers originally, you know, the, in terms of the, the size of the population of, of black uh, Scots, and, and they are growing in, in size. So quite rightly, they should be represented in the Parliament. And there's been a similar situation with Scots of, of Asian ethnicity. You know, we've had a long time before we really had... Um, um, Asian ethnicity MSPs, and now we have a leader of of one party, uh, Scottish Labour, and uh, the Justice Secretary. But of course, both are men. So you know, the next hurdle seems to be getting Black and uh, Asian minority ethnic women into the Parliament. Um, and we know all the barriers that are around uh, politics for women in general. And I think they're made even harder if you're a woman of colour. So it's up, it really is on all the political parties to to step up. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again, Gina, for joining uh, me this week please stay with us at the steamy uh, we'll release an episode every tuesday hopefully you enjoyed this episode uh, please rate and subscribe and thank you very much for listening the steamy a laudable production by the scotsman <laughs>